with you, uh, I invite you to turn in it to Galatians chapter 1. Last week we started looking at this, yeah, last week we started looking at this letter which was written to newly planted churches in a region called Galatia, and we read the opening greeting last week in which Paul did two things. He defended his apostolic ministry as being legitimate. It was from God, not from men. And then he summarized what the gospel is, that grace and peace come to us uh, through God's call on our lives, through, through Jesus who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. So that's how his, his greeting started out. And then with the greeting out of the way, now Paul gets down to business and he raises the key issue that this letter is about. So let's get right into it and read our text for the day. It's Galatians 1, 6 through 10. Let's read that and then pray. So Paul to the Galatians. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, Let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ." Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, that as we are reminded by Rama's testimony, you rescue people. There's good news to be had. There's deliverance from this present evil age, both the evil that's in our hearts and the evil that's around us. There is a hope and a future for those whose faith is in Jesus Christ. And Lord, would you again show us the beauty and the singularity of that gospel and grant us belief again. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Not too long after I became a Christian in college, I became one of the leaders of of the campus ministry that we were involved in, the Navigators. And um, I was, you know, barely ahead of those younger disciples that I was mentoring, <laughs> you know, didn't really know what I was doing yet, but was like half a step ahead of some other people. So I was mentoring and discipling people. We didn't know all that much, but one thing that we knew and agreed on was that Jesus Christ died for our sins and that forgiveness of sin and eternal life comes through faith in Jesus as Savior and not by our works. That much we knew. Well, there was other professing Christians, other students on campus who got wind of 
a bunch of new disciples coming to faith, and uh, they started to infiltrate, if I could use that word, our ministry. They were from uh, a church that was near campus that wasn't a cult per se, but these people were very cult-like in their pursuit of our young disciples. They, they would find people that were open to persuasion and begin to lure them to their church and away from everybody else and began to indoctrinate them in what they believed to be the real way of salvation. Their message was, faith is necessary. Faith in Christ is necessary, but you must also be baptized in order to be saved. So never mind the thief on the cross who was converted and entered paradise with Jesus without a baptism. That was a one-off. That was an exception. But for everybody else, you must be baptized or you are not forgiven. You are not going to heaven. And there was also a strong expectation that you would also join their church and live as they lived. Um, some of our young disciples were buying into that. They started to go to their church. They started to question the gospel that they heard. And as one of the leaders, I was very alarmed. I remember <clears throat> falling down. There was two friends on a couch. I fell down on my knees, and I was like begging them, don't go down this path. But I didn't know if I had any influence left in their lives. I didn't know if I could stop it. That's the situation Paul was facing, and that's the reason for his letter. Verse 7 explains the crisis. There are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Rival teachers had come into the churches that Paul planted, and they preached a different gospel. They preached a different way to God. They made these young believers doubt what Paul had told them about forgiveness and eternal life, and they were being swayed to another way. But it wasn't a good way. It was a distortion. So Paul's very alarmed, and he sends off this letter to change things. And so here, here is a raw and unfiltered outline of what he said in verses 6 to 10. One, I am shocked that you are leaving Jesus for worthless teaching. Two, anyone who does this to you should be damned to hell. Three, such teachers are not servants of Christ. Now, that's not going to be my outline for this morning. I will clean that up a little bit, but I think that accurately captures what Paul meant and the intensity of his feelings about this. This isn't just a gentle letter that he's writing. He loves these people, and the gospel they believe is a matter of life and death. There's no time here to beat around the bush. This is, their very life is at stake. And it's the same for us today. <clears throat> there is only one gospel that saves. Everything else is a distortion that doesn't work. And it's the same good news that we're going to hear again today from 
Galatians. So we'll follow a different outline than the raw and unfiltered one. Here's the first thing to learn from the passage, which is that the gospel is a relationship, not just a doctrine. It's a relationship, not just a doctrine. Again, verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. You can hear the level of Paul's intense feeling with the word astonished. It means shocked, speechless, dumbfounded. He's blown away at how quickly they have turned to a different gospel than the one he preached. It's the same kind of language that God used of Israel when they made for themselves a golden calf in the wilderness. After he had delivered them out of Egypt and they go into the desert and they say, here's, here's, here's the God that delivered us and they build this golden thing. And the Lord says, they have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. What the Galatians were doing was like that. It was no small matter, this turning to a different gospel. It's like making yourself a golden calf and saying, this will be my deliverance from the present evil age. So Paul's going to go after this different gospel with both barrels in the letter. But before he does that, he starts with the real gospel. And that's where we need to start. The true and beautiful way of salvation, which is in verse 6. And the first thing he says is that it is a relationship with God, not just a doctrine to believe. He says, you are deserting him who called you. Not just it. You are deserting him. You're not just deserting a religion. You're not just deserting a teaching or a doctrine. You're deserting him who called you. It's personal. You see, the rescue that we need from the evil in our hearts and the, and the evil in the world is not just about thinking different thoughts or putting on new behaviors. It's about being brought into relationship with the living God, Father, Son, and Spirit. The Apostle Peter put it this way, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Jesus spoke of it in terms of union with him. In John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Salvation is being vitally connected to God through Christ in a life-giving way, His life flowing into you like branches connected to a vine. And this relationship is also pictured as a marriage in Ephesians 5, where Christ is the husband and the church is His bride. That's why so often in Scripture it's called adultery when you move away from the truth of the gospel or move away from what God has revealed about himself. It's spiritual adultery because it's a person that you're leaving for something else. So the good news of salvation is that God calls us into relationship with himself, and that's so good to know <laughs> because in that relationship, you never walk alone. 
You're never without God's presence or without his help. You are, to quote Romans 1, you are loved by God. You are called to be a saint. You belong to Jesus Christ. God's will is that we enjoy this relationship with him through Jesus, who bought us with his blood. It's ongoing personal intimacy with God. Does it feel like that to you, though? Does it feel like a relationship with a living God? If you read the scriptures, if you listen to sermons, if you go throughout your day, does it feel like a relationship or like a duty? Now, I don't want to emphasize feelings too much because they go up and down based on lots of things, your health, your level of stress, your energy level, so forth. But we aren't just spending time with a book. We're, We're spending time with a living Savior who walks with us and talks with us along life's narrow way, to quote an old hymn. That's true deliverance. That's salvation. It's to be in a relationship with the living God. And the way that he calls us into that relationship is by grace. Paul says, God called you in the grace of Christ. And this is the essence of the true gospel. We get saved by God's grace. We talked about it last week. Grace is God's unmerited favor to sinners who deserve only judgment. And we deserve that because we've done many wrong things against God and against His standards. If His standard of righteousness is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, well, we haven't done that successfully for 10 minutes in any 10 minutes of our life. You know, there are lots of things that are wrong with us that we don't even see or know ourselves. We don't meet the standard, but the good news of the gospel is that we receive God's forgiveness, God's favor through Christ who gave himself for our sins. The gospel says it's not about you giving yourself to God, not you trying to improve your character and your actions and measure up to what he expects. No, the gospel that saves says your works will never measure up to God's standard, and that's why God has provided a different way for you to enter relationship with him. Christ will take the punishment in your place. And all you have to do is confess you needed him to do that for you, and he did do that for you. So, to sum up the the true and beautiful good news that Paul preached and that the scriptures affirm is that God calls us into relationship with himself in the grace of Christ who gave himself for our sins. Believe that and you are saved. It will be well with your soul. But that's not the only gospel that was circulating in the first century. There were alternative gospels, and there still are today. The problem is none of them can save. They aren't really good news, and that brings us to the next point. There is not another gospel. There is not another way into relationship with our Creator. 
Going back to verses 6 and 7, we hear this about the Galatian churches. You are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one. He calls this a, a different gospel, not that there is another one. He says that, and what he says, God says, because this is God's word, not just Paul's word. He says, there's no other gospel except the good news of him who called you in the grace of Christ who gave himself for our sins. That is the only good news. That is the only way to be saved. That's the gospel we preached. It's the gospel you received, he goes on to say. Anything else, anything that is different from that is not good news. It is not another way into relationship with the living God. It is is not a way to be delivered from evil. Now, that's a statement that doesn't sound right to a lot of people because it's so exclusive. How can there be only one way to God? How can Christianity make a claim to be the only way of salvation? It sounds arrogant and narrow. Well, it would be arrogant and narrow if it was just our own opinion but not if it comes from God himself. Not if it comes from the one who calls us into relationship with him. If he says there's only one way into that relationship, then there is only one way. Uh, It's sort of like how you get out of one of those escape rooms. Uh, If you haven't been in one, it's a room or rooms that are designed to be a fun group challenge. You get into a locked room, and you have to figure out a set of clues that lead you to get keys that open one thing after another until the last key opens the door and you get out. And there's usually a time limit. Um, You might have one hour to get out. The first one I was in also had a zombie in the corner on a chain. And the chain got longer as time went on, so you really wanted to get out of the room in a hurry. And this was an actor, but he was doing a good job. (laughs) There was only one way out of the escape room. Likewise, there's only one way to escape the evil in our hearts and in the world. But unlike the escape room, We're in a kind of captivity that's the result of our own sin and guilt before God. And the only way out, the only way of escape, is to ask God to open the door for us. Because we're not going to get out by ourselves. And that way, that way of opening the door is that His Son has to pay the penalty for our sin. Make us right with God. And then we can have relationship. Now, you would think that way would be appealing to everyone, that it's just as simple as receiving, believing, trusting, nothing you have to do. Um, But that isn't appealing to everybody, which is why there are other Gospels that are being offered. And we could talk about other religions and other beliefs that are out there, but let's talk about the one that the Galatian believers were starting to be swayed by. And this is still relevant because the Gospel of a lot of churched people is also this false gospel. They they believe that one too. Going back to verse 7, Paul says, 
There are those who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Trouble is a good word to describe what was happening to the believers in our college ministry. Um, trouble means to shake, to stir up. And they were definitely shaken. They were definitely stirred up by these proselytizers of this other gospel. It's very disturbing to have your foundational beliefs called into question, to think that what you put your hope in isn't real. And they hadn't been baptized yet, and they were being told that they have to be, so they're thinking, I'm not saved. That's very upsetting. It's very similar to what was happening with the Galatians. Some teachers were saying, trust in Christ isn't enough. You also need to be circumcised, keep other Old Testament laws to Israel. And we're going to learn about that later in the letter, that that was the issue. So it's not faith in Jesus equals salvation, but faith in Jesus plus obeying certain commands equals salvation. That was the gospel that others were preaching. Here's the question. Is there really anything wrong with that gospel? Because at first blush, that doesn't sound too bad. Isn't faith plus keeping certain commandments even better than faith without keeping certain commandments? How could faith alone save people, but not faith and obeying the things that God himself has said? That actually sounds more holy, more righteous. But Paul says that different gospel of faith plus obeying commands is a distortion. It's twisted. In verse 9, he says, it is a gospel contrary to the one you received. Meaning, it's, in, it's, a, it's opposed to it. It's in conflict with it. I like how one paraphrase translation puts it. It is not a minor variation, you know. It is completely other. An alien message. A no message. A lie about God. Now, how can that be true? Why is faith plus keeping commandments for salvation a lie? A completely different message than the gospel of grace in Christ being by faith alone. Here's one way to illustrate the difference. Let's say you get a $5,000 check in the mail. And the note with it says, From a friend, I just wanted to bless you. Have a nice day. Um, you can't take any credit for it. Um, all you can do is thank them. Or let's say this. You get a check in the mail for $5,000, and it's attached to your pay stub. It's your salary for the month, if you have a good job. <laughs> Those aren't the same thing, are they? The first one is freely given. You did nothing to earn it. You can't take credit for it at all. All you can do is thank the giver. The second one, the paycheck, you earned that. Maybe they paid you may, way more than what your work was worth, but that was the deal. You do work, you get paid. They owed it to you. The first one is gift. The second one is wages. The first one is undeserved. The second one is deserved. The first one is the true gospel. The second one is contrary to the gospel. If you're called into a relationship with God because of something you did to earn it, 
then it is no longer based on grace, which is undeserved favor. It's not a minor variation. It's completely different. It's not a saving gospel. Why? Because God calls himself calls us to himself in the grace of Christ, the undeserved, freely given, unearned favor of God and nothing else. If we add righteousness to the equation, our righteousness, then it's like trying to find our own way out of the escape room, not the way that God provided. That's us saying, I'm not going to accept salvation freely given, I'm going to work for it. That's wages, not grace. But in the true gospel, you're called into loving relationship with God by grace in Christ who did everything for you to be saved when he gave himself for your sins. A gospel that's partly salvation by faith and partly by your works is still contrary to grace. It's a non-gospel, it's a lie. We'll hit that note many times when we go through Galatians because God knows we need repetition. It doesn't sink in at once. Our hearts are not wired this way. We always feel like, but I should be able to do something to get it. And the gospel is like, actually, it's a lot better than that. (laughs) So we'll hit that note many times. But I want to address something here that may be troubling to a few people. And it's in the twice-repeated curse of verses 8 and 9 that Paul wishes on those who would preach this contrary gospel. He says in verse 8, Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And then, as if to make sure they know, I just didn't lose it for a moment that I regret. No, actually, I'll say it again. Uh, As we have said before, I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Now, to be accursed means, first of all, it's the worst thing that could ever happen to you. It means to be cursed by God. It means let righteous wrath be upon you. God's judgment, condemnation to hell, which is why I used that in the raw, unfiltered version. Let him be accursed means let God's judgment fall on anyone who is leading you Galatian believers away from the true gospel. Now, here's why that could be troubling to some of you, especially if you heard the message from Jonah chapter 4 two weeks ago. The, the gist of Jonah chapter 4 was that he was a prophet called by the Lord to go to Nineveh, a wicked city, terrible, terrible people, and God wanted Jonah to go there and preach a message so that they might be saved, and Jonah doesn't want to do it. So through the whole episode of the fish, he eventually gets up there, he gets to Nineveh, he says what God told him to say, they repent, and Jonah's not happy. And so he sits, he parks himself outside the city and he waits, hoping God will just burn the place down. And the story ends with God saying, shouldn't you have pity on these people that I made? Because I want them to be saved. 
But Jonah wanted them to burn. He wanted wrath. But here we have Paul saying about preachers of a bad gospel, let them be accursed. Let God's wrath fall on them. So how is that desire for God's wrath to fall on somebody okay, but Jonah's desire for the same thing is not okay? We can say it this way. Jonah wanted God's wrath to fall on people that God wanted to save. Paul wanted God's wrath to fall on people who were preventing them from being saved. Specifically, by teaching them a false gospel. That's what gets Paul angry. The people God, who claim to speak for God, who have the ear of people, tell them the wrong thing, the opposite thing, a a salvation that won't save. That'll get Paul angry because he wants people to be saved. See, Paul wasn't like Jonah who just wanted to see people burn because they were wicked. In fact, Paul said in Romans 9, 3, I wish, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. That's how much he wanted others to be saved. I would perish in their place. I would bear their curse if that would save them, if that would convince them. And it's because he so strongly wants people to be saved by the true gospel that he reserves his ire for people who claim to be speaking for Christ and lead them away from Christ to a gospel that doesn't save. In that way, he's right in line with Jesus. Jesus actually did bear the curse on behalf of wicked people, people like you and me, in fact. And when we get to chapter 3, we're going to see that. Jesus wants people to be saved. John 12, 47, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. That's his heart. But because that's his heart, what raises his ire is when people who claim to speak for God lead people away from salvation. Luke eleven fifty two. 52. Woe to you, lawyers. For you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. Woe to you is a pronouncement of a curse. And Jesus reserved that kind of language for the religious leaders of the day who claimed to speak for God but were actually hindering people from knowing God. So is it right to wish God's judgment on someone? Well, if you would rather perish than see unbelievers perish, like Jesus or Paul, you might be in the right place to do that. But let's not be too quick to call down a curse on unbelievers like Jonah wanted. Remember, you deserve the curse yourself. So do I. Love your enemies. They aren't the problem. Distorted gospels are the problem. One more point to make before we close. It's tempting to tell a different gospel. And this comes from verse 10, which is probably the most well-known verse in this paragraph, though it's not usually thought of in its immediate context. Paul says this, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? 
If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Now, you can spend a whole sermon on this verse teaching about man-pleasing, sometimes called the fear of man, the controlling desire to get people's approval, and certainly that's what this is about. Paul's point is, the person you are trying to please is the person that you serve. He says, if I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. If you want somebody's approval, if you want to please them, then their approval is your functional God. Because it's what they, their approval is what will dictate your choices and your actions. It will shape your life. You'll serve that person. And Paul says, if I do that, I would not be a servant of Christ. Your ultimate loyalty can't be divided between Christ and other people. He's the Lord. He's the one we serve, even if it means we don't please everybody else. But notice the word for is at the beginning of this verse, which means this temptation to please people is in the context of what preceded, which was telling this contrary, non-saving gospel to those who were troubling the churches of Galatia. Paul's saying, if I teach a gospel like theirs, then I would be a man-pleaser and not a servant of Christ. Now, why would that be the case? How could a gospel that requires both faith and your works to gain salvation, how could that be something that would please people? Why would anybody be tempted to tell or believe that gospel? I think the answer is partly in the particular situation of Paul's time, but it's also something that's true for all times. Paul's situation was this. You've got Jews who now follow Jesus, but they're still zealous for keeping all the Jewish laws of the Old Testament. They grew up with that. So a gospel that says you can be saved, but you have to become a Jew and do the things Jews do, that doesn't represent a big life change for them. They can have Jesus and they can go on as they did before. They can still go to the synagogue, they can keep the festivals, they can circumcise their children, and so forth. It's comfortable, it fits what they're already doing. The main difference is just now they know that Jesus is their long-awaited Messiah. So that's a comfortable gospel that doesn't represent a major life change. It was also a safer gospel because it still looks a lot like Judaism, if you also have to be circumcised and do all that. And Judaism was a legal religion in the Roman Empire. The Jews didn't normally get persecuted for that. They were allowed a lot of freedom in that area. So if you still look like you're one of the Jews, that's safer. That's why it would be very appealing to Jewish believers to believe and communicate that gospel. But the true gospel says this is not the same thing as Judaism. This is different, and that's what's going to be disruptive. That's going to overturn long-held ways of thinking, long habits formed over centuries, and it's more likely to get you persecuted if the authorities figure out that is, this is not Judaism. So yes, in Paul's day, a gospel that says believe in Jesus and keep the Jewish law would please people a lot more than a gospel that says just trust in Jesus and you don't need to become a Jew to become a Christian. 
But Paul says, I can't preach that gospel and be a servant of Christ because that's not his good news. Well, how about our day? Is there a temptation to tell and believe a gospel that's partly your faith and partly your actions, your obedience to God's moral commands? Is there any appeal to that? Yes, there is, and I think you know that there is by personal experience if you're a believer. Does your sense of acceptance and love from God rise and fall on how bad or how good you think you've been? If so, then your functional gospel is that God's love and dependence do depend to some degree on how well you're doing, on your obedience. That's a faith plus law-keeping gospel, functionally. Or, have you ever been hesitant to believe that Jesus' death on the cross really doesn't need anything extra from you? That there's nothing you have to do to make up to God for what you've done wrong, that he counts you blameless in his sight as you are right now, despite your remaining sins and your future sins. Does that sound slightly heretical? If it does sound heretical, then the grace of Christ hasn't completely sunk in. The gospel isn't good enough news for you yet, and you have something to look forward to. Because he has done it all. On the cross, it is finished. That's what he said. There's more freedom, there's more relief, there's more peace waiting for you as you go deeper into these truths. Now, make no mistake, believing the gospel of grace will lead to a changed life. Chapters 5 and 6 are all about the ethical implications of the gospel. It will lead to not gratifying the desires of the flesh. That's what chapter 5 talks about. Not continuing in unholy desires. But the motivation is because we do that because we're saved, not to get saved. Big difference. Let me close with this. There is only one gospel. There is only one really good news, and anybody can get in on it. It's just received by faith in the one who gave himself for our sins. That good news is what we to be, we're to believe. Jesus plus nothing is the way. Jesus plus anything else is contrary to the way. That's, this is the gospel where we find peace. <laughs> It's for us to enjoy. It's for us to celebrate. There is no other gospel, and there doesn't need to be. So let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for how you've made it easy in some ways to understand, trust in Christ who died for our sins, and yet it's not easy because in our hearts we rebel against that way. We want to find a different way out of the escape room. And we don't want to take your way. That's, that's our natural place. But Lord, by your Spirit, you overcome that reluctance in us. And we ask you to do that in everyone here. Help us to just humble ourselves. Admit defeat. We can't do it. We need you. We trust that Christ did all that was needed. May that belief take root in every soul. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.